This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Hapalak. In the past few weeks, Ukraine's armed forces have launched a number of successful counterattacks against the Russian army. Ukrainian forces retaking a key city, finding military equipment and supplies that the Russians left behind as they made what appears to have been a hasty retreat. The Ukrainians have won back thousands of square kilometres of territory in the east and south of the country, and they're still going. UK intelligence says defending forces have taken the Kremlin by surprise and have seized the key city of Kupensk, cutting off Moscow's supply route to Izum. But the occupiers must know we will chase them to the border, to our border, whose line has not been changed. Occupiers are well aware of it. If they want to survive, it's time for the Russian military to run away. Go home. To understand what's been happening, I'm joined today by our reporter Dan McLaughlin, who has been covering the war in Ukraine throughout 2022. Dan, this counteroffensive began in late August in the south of the country, but it's really in the past few days in the northeast region of Kharkiv that huge advances have been made by the Ukrainians, to the surprise of many, including, it seems, the Russians who have retreated, leaving behind stockpiles of, of weapons and even tanks. When did this operation in Kharkiv begin and how did it begin? Well, it seems to have really started towards the end of last month, the start of September, but it only really picked up pace in the last five or six days, maybe a week. And it seems, according to military analysts, that Russia uh, sent forces to reinforce the Kherson region in the south of Ukraine that you mentioned there. Attacks have begun with HIMARS, American-made rocket systems. Damaging a key bridge. Into and all eyes were on there. Ukrainian eyes were on that. It seems that Russian eyes were on that. And most of the world was looking to that area as to the place where there might be major changes on the battlefield. Uh, in, in the Kherson region, uh, we are aware in some cases of Russian units falling back. But it seems that Ukrainian forces to the northeast in Kharkiv, which you mentioned there, took advantage of this saw weakened spots in the Russian defensive lines and punched through them, moving very quickly, very effectively, and got in behind the Russian lines and basically started to sow chaos. Intercepting supply lines, stopping Russia reinforcing those areas, and it's moved incredibly quickly, particularly in the northeast. There is still some movement in the south, and there is some movement around the Donetsk and Lugansk regions as well, but it is that Kharkiv region where, where Ukraine has made the, the biggest gains in the last week or so. Since the first days of September and until today, our warriors have liberated more than 6,000 square kilometers of the territory of Ukraine in the south and in the east. And at the time of recording, Dan, there is still news coming through almost by the hour of the Ukrainian army recapturing more villages and more territory. What kind of capacity do they have to keep pushing forward? This is one of the questions now. I mean, we're seeing because of social media, of course, we're seeing this developing almost in real time. Very, very quickly, we're seeing villages, towns falling to the Ukrainians, Ukrainian troops celebrating in these towns and villages, being greeted by locals, the Ukrainian flag flying again over places where it hasn't flown um, since the end of February when the Russian invasion began. But the question now, as you mentioned there, is how successfully can Ukraine hold this? And it is something that Ukrainian officers and top politicians are aware of. The defense minister was warning today that Ukraine doesn't want to get too stretched in its own supply lines. It doesn't want to find itself uh, overstretched and vulnerable to a Russian counterattack. So Ukraine will be watching for that, and it is watching for that closely. There is certainly 
uh, a temptation, I think, on the Ukrainian side to keep pushing, to use this uh, breakthrough in Kharkiv to push down south into the Lugansk region, into the Donetsk region. And that is happening in some areas. Mm. But I think particularly having seen what's happened to the Russians and their, what happened to them when they didn't have enough servicemen effectively in strong enough positions to defend their areas, the Ukrainians will make sure that that doesn't happen to them and the, and the Russians can't turn the tables on them basically in the next days and weeks. Dan, how significant do you think is this counteroffensive in the context of the broader war? Could this be a turning point? I think it is important in several ways. It's important for Ukraine to show that it can actually go on the counteroffensive successfully, mm. that it can push Russian forces back. Because we mentioned the operations down in Kherson, they are moving much, much more slowly than what's happening up in Kharkiv. But to show such rapid success over the past six or seven days, that's really a boost for the morale of the Ukrainian servicemen, but also, of course, of the Ukrainian nation. It's also, as I suggested there, a message to Ukraine's Western allies that all the weapons that you're sending to us, we are putting them to maximum use. And please send us more. I mean, that's another call that's going out every day now still from Ukrainian officials. Give us more so that we can do this in other regions. It's also significant, I think, um, as regards Donetsk and Lugansk regions that I mentioned there. Because in the last two or three days, mm. Ukraine has managed to retake towns like uh, Kupiansk, uh, Balaklia, Izium in the Kharkiv region. And these are not just... Um, significant settlements, significant towns, cities in Kharkiv region, but they are on key supply routes heading down into Donetsk and Lugansk regions. So if Ukraine can hold them, it can not only make life much more difficult for the Russian troops down in Donetsk and Lugansk, but it can also hamper Russia's effort to take the whole of Donbass. Donbass is Lugansk and Donetsk regions combined, and Russia said that this is its main objective, to take all of the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. That will be much tougher um, because of what's happened in Kharkiv in the last few days. There's been a lot of analysis recently of how impressively the Ukrainian army is performing, but also of how poorly the Russian army is doing. Why is that? What is it that allows Ukraine to outmatch Russia in battle, even though... The Russian army should, on paper at least, be a lot stronger. Yeah, I mean, it is a, a, a mixed picture because if we look at Donbass, for example, the Donetsk and Lugansk regions, there's really been a kind of stalemate there for a long time. Um, for the last three, four months, very little movement. Um, the Russians managed to take Lysychansk, Severodonetsk, but since then they haven't really moved forward. But at the same time, Ukraine hasn't been able to push them back. In Kherson region, we've seen Ukraine taking some villages, but again, not moving very quickly. From what uh, military analysts and experts say, Russia has uh, put more forces and higher quality forces down in the Kherson region and in Donbass. And it's probably because these areas are more strategically important to Russia. When you look at the map, you see that the Kherson region adjoins Crimea, the peninsula that Russia annexed back in 2014. And it's very, very important for Russia to hold on to that. It also, because it does border with Crimea, it's much easier for Russia to reinforce that area so they can send troops much more easily and weaponry through Crimea to reinforce their positions in Kherson. They can do the same with Donetsk and Lugansk because those two regions flow straight through 
to the Russian Federation. There is an open border between Donetsk and Lugansk into Russia so they can keep pouring uh, troops and armor through there to reinforce their positions. It's much more difficult in Kharkiv. But the thing that Ukrainians have done very well is not only use these Western weapon systems that we mentioned to strike Russian supply lines. They've also used the terrain very well. So when you look at Kharkiv, they've managed to trap a lot of Russian troops between Ukrainian lines and the Oskil River. And they've moved in and they've performed really punishing attacks, managing to isolate the Russian troops against that river and then really grind them down. They've done the same, in fact, in a, to a bigger scale, down in Kherson, where they've managed to trap a pocket of Russian troops against the Dnieper River. They've struck the bridges that uh, cross the Dnieper River. They've struck pontoon bridges that the Russians have put in place to try and uh, help them uh, cross that river with supplies and with men. Um, so effectively, isolating Russian troops, using these Western weapons to limit their ability to withdraw or to resupply has been extremely effective. But they can't do that in every area. So I think what we've seen is the Ukrainians using the terrain, using the weapons they've got very smartly. But at the same time, they say when it comes to a big open area like the plains of Donetsk and Lugansk regions, it's much, much tougher for them. That's why they say we need more weapons, we need more artillery, we need more ammunition, because it's a different kind of battle in those two areas. And it will take much longer to wear down the Russians in those places too. Moscow's worst defeat since its forces were driven back from Kiev has turned the tide in the six-month-old war and stirred anger among some Russian pro-war commentators and nationalists. Stepping back and looking at the bigger picture here, Dan, can we talk about the implications of this outside the physical battlefield? This is a major humiliation for Russia and for Vladimir Putin. What has the reaction in Russia been and who is being blamed? Well, this is, of course, one of the advantages that, that Putin has as uh, a dictator, effectively now. There is no critical media there is no effective opposition in Russia. Um, so these things, the, the Russian choices, uh, not only to invade Ukraine, but the operational choices day to day, are not being questioned publicly in the way they would be in a democracy. We're not seeing politicians coming out and challenging Putin. We're not seeing the major newspapers and the major television programs asking what's going on and, and why Russia has found itself in this position. We are seeing one or two things that are interesting. On the state television channels, every evening there are talk shows, but basically they exist to broadcast Kremlin talking points. They broadcast several talking heads, analysts, politicians, so-called experts get together and they basically tell the nation what to think about what is going on in Russia today. And we have seen in the last couple of days some more heated discussion on these shows than we usually see, with at least a couple of people featured on these shows questioning what's going on, questioning whether Russia made the wrong decision to go into Ukraine, questioning how the military operation is being conducted. And we don't usually see anything like that on these shows. So there is a bit of that. Secondly, we've seen, and I think 18 district councils in Moscow and St. Petersburg, we've seen deputies actually making appeals for Putin to step down or to be removed. Now, these are not national politicians. It's not the national parliament. These aren't members of the national parliament. These are just district councillors. But it's also interesting that they've, they've, they've done this because it's taking a big risk. To criticise Putin, to criticise the war, to criticise the armed forces is effectively illegal in Russia now. And some of these people who have signed these petitions, they have already been charged with discrediting the armed forces. 
There's a third element, I think, which is interesting as well, and that's that while we don't hear criticism on a national level from major politicians or, or, or state media, there are military bloggers who are close to the Russian military and close to mercenary groups that are fighting in Ukraine. Some of them have a lot of followers and they're quite high profile at a time like this. Um, and some of them have been absolutely scathing in their condemnation of the way the military operation, the invasion is being conducted. They've absolutely lambasted the, uh, the Russian commanders and said that they're getting it all wrong. So we are seeing things like that on social media as well. But generally, I would say it's still calm in Russia as regards Putin's uh, position. We're not seeing anything that could even remotely be considered a threat to him at the moment. Mm. But there are just a few of these ripples on the surface which we don't usually see. Some of these internal critics of Russia's war effort have been saying that Putin must order a general mobilisation now if he's serious about beating Ukraine, meaning that any and all young men in Russia could find themselves heading into battle. Have there been any indications that Putin will take that step? And how do you think the public would respond? Yeah, that's a crucial question, I think. Um, not only at the start of the Russian full invasion of, of Ukraine, when the military failed to take Kyiv, they failed to take Kharkiv, now they're suffering more setbacks. One of the things that military experts have said is that Russia just doesn't have enough soldiers available and enough high-quality troops to make an operation like this work. They can't even take these major cities, never mind hold them. So I think Russia could definitely do with more military manpower, if it could muster it. The problem is, of course, that this could be deeply unpopular with people. Mm. If you have people in Moscow, St. Petersburg, other major cities, feeling like their sons, daughters could be taken off the street, effectively, and taken to the front in Ukraine, that could definitely change the dynamic of, of how public opinion sees this war. I mean, at the moment, it's, it's very interesting when you see analysis of the people who are fighting. A lot of the people fighting are not from the major cities. They're from the more remote regions of Russia, the poorer regions of Russia. And obviously, the Kremlin is less worried about criticism from these remote areas, whether it's in the Caucasus, whether it's in Central Asia, whether it's in uh, Siberia, whether it's in the Far East, rather than what they would hear from people in Moscow and St. Petersburg, for example. Mm. So a mobilization is definitely risky in terms of public opinion. And I think that's mostly why, that's the main reason why Putin hasn't gone for it yet. This is something that some military bloggers are calling for now. Mm. They're also calling for much tougher military strikes on Ukraine. Some of them are even calling for tactical nuclear strikes on Ukraine. You know, they're not saying that we've got this wrong. Ukraine clearly wants and deserves to be independent. Ukraine doesn't want us there. They're saying we have to be tougher with Ukraine. Mm. That's why many of them were celebrating online last night when apparently in response to this route in the Kharkiv region, Russia um, sent salvos of missiles towards Kharkiv and to other major cities, attacking the electricity grids in these cities, knocking out power, knocking out water supplies. And they've done the same in Kharkiv again today. So most of those more, more, more strident voices are actually asking for tougher measures towards Ukraine and an escalation and more brutality towards the Ukrainians. Zelensky urged the West to continue their partnership to defeat what he called Russian terror on Monday. 
On the Ukrainian side of things, one of the major challenges for President Volodymyr Zelensky throughout this war has been convincing Western supporters that Ukraine can win and should be supported with weapons and aid to help it win. These latest developments have somewhat vindicated that argument and will help Zelensky continue to make that argument, right? Yeah, that's certainly what he hopes. That's certainly what his top officials hope. Um, we've seen government ministers and advisors to Zelensky uh, every day, in fact, several times a day saying what we need. I mean, they've said this during the whole course of the, 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 the war over the last six months, that what we need is weapons. They've always argued that if you give us the weapons, we will do the job. We have the people who can do it. We have uh, absolutely no lack of volunteers, no lack of people ready to sign up and fight, no lack of willpower, no lack of expertise among people who can get to know these uh, often quite advanced, complicated Western systems and get to use them effectively very quickly. But it's only really in the past month or so, maybe six weeks, that we've really seen this in action on the battlefield. We saw it first in Kherson region, which we talked about earlier, um, where these long-range high-precision rocket systems, most notably the HIMARS system that the Americans have delivered, is being used to hit, to strike deep in occupied territory, hitting the supply lines of the Russians, hitting their ammunition depots, hitting their fuel supplies, knocking out bridges that they would use to send in reinforcements or indeed to retreat if it eventually comes to that. Mm. So Ukraine has shown that they can use these systems very effectively and now they've shown it in the last few days in Kharkiv as well. Um, so as you say, this for Zelensky and his team is absolute vindication, but they're saying, you know, this is, this is not uh, a moment to stop sending us these things. This is a time to step it up because we need more and the quicker we have them, the quicker we can put an end to the war. Videos have been circulating of Ukrainians greeting soldiers who have liberated their towns and villages from the Russian army. They are joyous scenes, but we all remember the grim news that emerged when the Russians pulled out of Bucha back in April about the extent of the war crimes allegedly committed by Russian soldiers there. Are similar reports emerging at all in the liberated areas of Kharkiv? It's certainly something that local officials are saying is likely that uh, police teams and investigators will be going in and looking for evidence of war crimes. As you mentioned there, in towns like Bucha, outside Kiev, mass graves were found, evidence that has been catalogued uh, by the Ukrainians of alleged war crimes, atrocities, torture, disappearances, uh, summary execution. You know, Bucha and those towns outside Kiev, they were just under Russian control for maybe two months. In Kharkiv, we're talking about places that were under Russian control for about six months. So obviously the scope for crimes committed against Ukrainian servicemen and the local civilian population is much bigger in these areas. But the answer is really that we just don't know yet. Ukrainian troops are still conducting mopping up operations in these areas. They are demining them. They're not letting press get anywhere near to most of these recently liberated towns and villages, the police force, investigators, the prosecutor's office, they're only just starting to get into these recently liberated towns and villages. So I think it will be quite some time before we, we get a clear picture. And then some time after that, evidence, if there is evidence, is collated and cases are built to go on top of the things that we've seen in um, the areas around Kiev that you mentioned, like, like Bucha. 
That's everything for today. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.